This episode of Mayo Clinic Talks is brought to you by National Dairy Council. Since 1915, National Dairy Council is dedicated to research and education of dairy foods. As a nonprofit organization founded by dairy farmers, National Dairy Council is committed to providing science-based education on dairy's nutritional benefits for health and wellness. Learn more at usdairy.com backslash National Dairy Council. This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Calcium and vitamin D are essential in building healthy bone. They're especially important early in life as our bone mineral density increases. Yet many individuals are not receiving adequate amounts of calcium or vitamin D. What are the most common dietary sources of calcium? Is dietary calcium superior to calcium supplements? Should our patients be taking supplemental calcium and or vitamin D? In today's podcast, we'll review the importance of calcium and vitamin D, and I'll be discussing these questions with our guest, endocrinologist and bone specialist, Dr. Dan Hurley, from the Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism at the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Dan, welcome, and thank you for joining me today. It's great to see you back. Thank you, Daryl. Great to be here. Let's start by talking about calcium. What role calcium plays in bone health? It's very important for skeletal structure. 99% of the calcium in our body is in our bone. And so it's important to build strong bones to house that calcium because all of the cells of the body need calcium for functioning. So if we're not uh, getting enough calcium, our bones are not built to their normal size and strength. And later on in adult life, if we're not getting enough calcium, because all cells in the body use calcium, then the body will remove calcium from that bone storage depot to serve other places in the body. So calcium is indeed important throughout life both to build bone and later on to maintain bone as well as other bodily function cellular activity. I've had patients who mistakenly uh, feel that once they see their um, serum calcium level assume that they've got adequate calcium because that's normal and then by explaining that it's going to stay normal but it's taking calcium out of your bank of calcium in your bones to maintain that normal range. And that's important too, Daryl, if I may say, that's a common comment that we have, thinking that the calcium level in the blood is normal, so a person's getting enough calcium. Mm -hmm. But that leads me to talk about endocrinology, endocrine being the hormone activity in the body. So if we're not getting enough calcium, our parathyroid hormone turns up to take it out of bone to keep the level in the blood normal. So Mm -hmm. the, the blood calcium can be misleading in terms of patients thinking they're getting enough. Well, how much calcium do we need? I know it changes. So start with young children and then through young adults, pregnancy, and then older ages. So it does change from time to time as we get older. So children aged one to three guidelines are that they receive about 700 milligrams of the calcium. Calcium is always bound to something. So we have to make sure it's the elemental calcium we're talking about. In the younger toddler years from four to eight, we need about a thousand milligrams of calcium. 
if you realize that about 300 milligrams is in a cup of milk, so that'd be at least three cups of milk a day. And then in the teenage years from about nine to 18, as bones are growing and getting mature size and depositing calcium into bone for later on, we need a little bit more, up to 1,300 milligrams of calcium. Now, there is some leeway there. That would be a level to shoot for. And then up to age 50 for men and women, 1,000 milligrams. And then postmenopausally, men stay at 1,000. And because women are the highest risk of bone loss, they need about 1,200 milligrams. Now, you mentioned for pregnant or nursing women, they also provide calcium for the fetus. So they need a little bit more, again, up to about 1,300, similar to teenage years. And we're gradually building new bone early in life, right? What age do we reach our peak bone density? Well, the epiphyses close, meaning the bones stop growing in length at about age, you know, 14, 16, 18, somewhere in there. But the, the bone still deposits calcium into the bone upwards to the age of 24 in women and a little bit older, 25, 26 in men. So we reach our peak bone density in the mid-20s. And unfortunately, it's all downhill after that. Where do we get most of our dietary calcium? Where does it come from? Uh, primarily from dairy. So as I mentioned, a cup of milk is going to have about 300 milligrams. It doesn't matter if it's skim or 2% or whole. That's related to the fat content, but calcium is about 300 milligrams in a, in a cup of milk. Now, there are people that don't like dairy milk or don't like the protein in the dairy. So there's alternative types of dairy, if you will, or milk sources or calcium sources. For instance, almond milk has 430 milligrams of calcium. So whereas you need three cups of dairy milk to get about 900, you only need two cups of almond milk. So it's really good to read the labels. And the labels are pretty good at telling you how many milligrams of the elemental calcium. There's varied amounts of calcium in other foods. Yogurt has anywhere from 250 to 300. Cheeses vary from 125 for American cheese up to 270 for Swiss cheese. There's some in cottage cheese. I tell my wife I need a lot of ice cream. There's only about 125 <laughs> in a cup of ice cream. So I try to get my calcium through ice cream, but that takes yeah. a lot of ice cream. So you're doing yourself a nutritional favor by eating more and more ice cream. <laughs> It does taste good. <laughs> so as you mentioned, there are some people who either can't or don't have much dairy intake. Where else can one get calcium? What non-dairy foods have a fair amount in it? Well, kefir has a fair amount for those that like to get their calcium through vegetables. There's not a lot of calcium in fruit and vegetables. Beans has some. Kefir is going to have more. If you like Yogurt is pretty good digested food. Let me just say, Edamibi only has 45 milligrams of calcium for half a cup. Tofu has quite a bit, about 430. Almonds, you need about 20 almonds to get 75. So most of the calcium is going to come through fortified, like fortified orange juice, kefir, vegetables. But the best source of knowing if you're getting enough is either to go online for calcium contents of foods or to talk to your local dietitian. Mm -hmm. Is there any difference between the dietary calcium found in dairy products and the calcium in non-dairy products, either in absorption or any, any difference between that, that calcium? Or is calcium calcium? 
calcium tends to be calcium, but it is bound to something. So for instance, if, if someone can't get enough calcium in their diet, they may be asked to take a calcium tablet. It has to be bound to something. So it can be bound to lactate or phosphate or carbonate or citrate. The most common calciums on the market are calcium carbonate and citrate. And the carbonate needs a little bit of acid to kind of go into solution. Once the tablet's broken down, it still has to go into solution. And that's where the acid from the stomach comes in to play, whereas the citrate doesn't need that. So there's some mild nuances of absorption, but in general, once the calcium is dissociated from the salt, whether that be carbonate or citrate, it will be absorbed fairly readily. Vitamin D is very important in that. I know we may talk about vitamin D later, but vitamin D can help actively absorb the calcium across the gut. Otherwise, it tends to be passively absorbed. Any difference between dietary calcium and calcium supplements, or is that about equivalent? It is equivalent. Once the calcium is dissociated from the calcium supplement, it is just calcium, elemental calcium. So one doesn't need a special calcium, a special oyster shell calcium, for instance. It's whatever calcium is best tolerated. Now, if it's in food, there's other items in food that are good. So if someone takes dairy milk, for instance, they're getting some phosphate and some magnesium and, and some protein. So in general, we tend to say that if possible, a person should get their calcium through food intake. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, there, as you mentioned, there are several types of calcium supplements. And I think you mentioned calcium carbonate, oyster shell. That's probably the least expensive and I think most common type of calcium. Repeat again why one would want to take calcium citrate. What's the advantage in that? Well, calcium citrate tends not to cause constipation. In some patients, calcium carbonate can be constipating. And also, calcium citrate dissociates very easily. So the calcium doesn't need the acid to be dissociated. In that way, can be more, quote, easily, unquote, absorbed. The problem with calcium citrate, call it a concern or a barrier, is that it only binds about calcium of 20%. So of 1,000 milligrams of calcium citrate, 20% will be calcium or 200 milligrams. Whereas carbonate binds much more calcium. So 1,000 milligrams of calcium carbonate binds 40%. So that person will get 400 of calcium. So you need twice as many tablets of the citrate to equal the same amount of carbonate. That's interesting. I had not heard that before. So our patients, many of our patients are taking uh, acid suppressing medications, proton pump inhibitors, H2 antagonists, and so forth. So they may be better off taking a calcium citrate, but they're going to have to take more than a calcium carbonate. Yes, yes, that's true. Now, okay. there's an interesting study, it, not many, but there's a group of individuals around the Mediterranean that don't make any acid in their stomach. They're called achlorhydric. And if they take the carbonate on an empty stomach because they don't have any acid, they don't absorb the, carbonate, the calcium from the carbonate at all. But if they take the calcium carbonate with food, as we tend to recommend for almost everyone, they seem to absorb it just fine. So there's enough acid in the food to help that calcium to go into solution and be absorbed. And one of the ways we can check on that is checking a, a urine calcium. We mentioned a blood calcium is not the best assessment of calcium intake, but a urine calcium, 24-hour collection can be very helpful. Hmm. You started to answer my next question, so I want you to 
expand on that a little bit. What is there anything that can enhance the absorption of calcium? It sounds like food is uh, is is one thing. Food is good if it calcium's from food, then that's natural, of course. Mm-hmm. If someone's taking calcium carbonate, I would have them take it with a meal, and also the body seems to be able to like calcium in smaller amounts. So rather than taking it all at once, you would break it up throughout the day, at least two servings. So if I had to take calcium carbonate, I wouldn't take my milk with breakfast in the morning and calcium carbonate at that time. I would take my milk and yogurt in the morning and my calcium later on at a different meal. So splitting up the dosing tends to help absorption. And of course, taking it with food, as we said, with the exception of citrate, and making sure one has adequate vitamin D, as we alluded to earlier. And I've been told that we should recommend to our patients that they take no more than 500 milligrams of calcium at a time. Is that the correct amount? That's the guideline today, 500 to 600. Of course, some people take two glasses of milk at, uh, at a meal, and that's mm-hmm. going to be 600 milligrams. So yes, that would tend to be the recommended amount, and then divide it up. So you take the other half later in the day. Okay. So we know that lack of stomach acid or acid suppressing medications can impair the absorption of calcium. Is there anything else that affects calcium absorption? Well, if someone has a certain disease states, so we need the villi or the finger-like projections in the small bowel to absorb food and nutrients. So if someone has a short bowel due to surgery or has celiac sprue or has inflammatory bowel, which is a little bit different than the irritable bowel, but -hmm. any of those things that would affect the gut ability to absorb would also affect the absorption as well. Yeah. And I've had a few patients who had some premature osteopenia, and that was a clue that they had impaired absorption from celiac disease. So that bears watching as well. Is there an optimal time of day to take a calcium supplement? Morning, midday, evening, nighttime? I would say with your two main meals of the day. Now we know that, uh, for instance, in our profession, nurses work at night, so they may have a nighttime schedule. So, you know, they should just take it if they're working at night during, during their eating time and during their night shift. So whenever you're eating a meal, that would be the best time to take the calcium. You mentioned earlier that we could assess how calcium is absorbed by checking a urine calcium. So I am I believe then some of that calcium in our diet is going to be expelled in the urine. Is there a problem giving calcium supplements to patients who have a history of calcium-containing kidney stones? There can be, yes. And so we have to be very careful. We work with our nephrology kidney doctor colleagues to try and find out why they're having kidney stones. There may be a gut-related issue. So for instance, Patients with through and white gastric bypass are more likely to form kidney stones. Mm-hmm. Some people that take Orlistat for weight loss or obstipation can form some kidney stones. If you're not getting enough water in hydration, your urine can become concerted and that can form kidney stones. And then there can be some inherent disorders of the kidney that cause just a, I'll call it a calcium leak, where the body doesn't conserve calcium normally and there's just too much calcium being released. So before we would want to recommend a certain amount of calcium, if someone's having kidney stones, we certainly would visit with them about their kidney stones, try and get a better history, have our nephrology kidney doctor colleagues see them as well and work with them. There are some things we can do for that, but you're correct. We would want to be careful about the calcium that they would ingest because we don't want to aggravate the kidney stones. Sure. Mm -hmm. 
So let's turn to vitamin D. What role does vitamin D play in bone health? Well, vitamin D is, is very interesting. First of all, it, it's misnamed because a vitamin is something the body can't make by definition, and our body makes vitamin D. So we thought that way back in the 30s, when kids were having rickets and bowed bones, that when they got cod liver oil or substances with vitamin D and they got corrected in their rickets disease, that this must be a vitamin. But it's actually a, a vitamin and a hormone. And so it's important throughout the body's cell, mostly as we understand it now for muscle and bone health. Vitamin D helps absorb the calcium from the gut and take it to the bone and lock it into the bone and make soft bone hard. It's, it's, I share with my patients, it's kind of like construction where you lay down that wet cement and it has to harden. And vitamin D, like sunlight, will help harden bone by absorbing the calcium and taking it to the bone and locking it in place. That's a, that's a simple mm -hmm. uh, description of what vitamin D can do. Where do we get most of our vitamin D? Most of it comes from the sunlight. So if someone is out in the sun and gets sunlight three times a week on their face, arms, and legs for about 15 minutes a time, that'll be about 25,000 units of vitamin D. Now, there's not a lot in dairy. So if I took a glass of milk and consumed that for breakfast, that's 300 of calcium, but only 100 of vitamin D. And most of us need about 2,000 units or 50 micrograms of vitamin D. So at 2,000 units, I'd have to drink 20 glasses of milk a day, but I only need three for my calcium. Mm -hmm. So if we're not in the sun because of culture or clothing or skin protection, then we really need to get it through a supplement. Do we see more problems with vitamin D supplementation in the northern climates? Like here in Minnesota, we get about a week of summer and then 11 and a half months of winter. So is there more vitamin D deficiency in the colder climates? There is, yes. And so above the latitude of approximately Boston or Rochester, certainly in that Washington, Oregon area, from about September Labor Day to May 1st Memorial Day, the angulation of the sun, it gives us light, but it doesn't give us enough ultraviolet light to make vitamin D into the skin. So yes, we tend to not get enough vitamin D production, even if we're outdoors from September to May. The beauty of that is that the half-life of vitamin D is very long. So if children are out in the sun playing in the spring, summer, and fall, and then they're at school during the winter, that vitamin D can last months until the next spring, summer comes around. And that's one of the beauties of vitamin D. It has a long half-life for the body. So as I was reading on this topic, I came across an article that said that vitamin D is our most common over-the-counter nutritional supplement being taken nowadays. Is it safe for all patients to just start taking vitamin D or who should we recommend taking a vitamin D supplement? Well, everyone should have vitamin D. It's so important for muscle strength and for bone health. Everyone should be getting vitamin D. If someone's out in the sun and they're tanning, they probably are getting enough vitamin D. But if you're using sunscreen, even with tanning, that can block a significant amount of production of vitamin D. And so a safe amount of vitamin D is somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 units a day total intake, whether that be multivitamin, calcium supplements have it in as a supplement to the calcium. So between 1,000 or 2,000 international units, which is 12 and a half to 25 micrograms a day. Mm -hmm. 
So maybe those who don't get a lot of dairy product, maybe use sunscreen when going outdoors, take vitamin D supplement wouldn't be a bad idea, but limit it to under 1,000 to 2,000 units per day. Is that safe to say? That's safe to say. It, it is very safe. The normal range in our labs is for population health above 20 micrograms. For bone health, it should be 30 to 50. Mm -hmm. But levels can be much higher than those and still be safe. If you're out in the sun a lot, the California skater or Hawaiian surfer, levels can range from 30 up to 70. But they're not all 60. So everyone's unique. And if there's any concern, a one-time measurement of a vitamin D level can be helpful to you. Mm -hmm that person and that person's provider. I often will look at how much vitamin D my patients are taking, and I'm aware that there are a variety of doses out there, 400, 800, 1,000, 2,000. There's even a 10,000 international unit dose out there, and there are no instructions on the bottle. And I've had patients who assume that that 10,000 international unit or capsule is once a day, and their levels were extremely high. So that's more like once a month or once every two, three weeks. Is that accurate? That is accurate. And it's very confusing. And, and patients sometimes will say, well, if 2,000 is good, 10,000 is better. Mm -hmm. And they come in with vitamin D toxicity. And where toxicity would be where the calcium level's high and the hearing calcium's high, the vitamin D level can just be above normal. And we call that hypervitaminosis D, where you don't have an elevated calcium in the blood or urine. Now, the reason that there are those different doses is because there's different needs. So someone who may be traveling a lot doesn't remember to take their vitamin D every day. They can take it intermittently because it does stay in the body a long mm -hmm. time. So 50,000 units once a month, for instance, is about 1,300 units a day on average. And that would be appropriate for someone who always forgets or just wants to take it once a month or if someone's in a nursing home, let's say, and issues uh, of pill burden is high. So I tend to ask the patient what their preference is. Some people mm -hmm. like it every day because they're very good at taking their pills every day. And some people just like it once a week or once a month. And the average should be somewhere between that one and 2000 per day, no matter what the dose is. And vitamin D is one of the fat-soluble vitamins. So it is not eliminated from the body in excess, unlike... So such vitamins as vitamin C, where you take more than you need and it just goes out in the urine. So vitamin D is stored and it can lead to excess. What are the potential complications of taking excessive vitamin D? Mostly related to the calcium. You can have too much calcium in the blood and that can cause symptoms. Usually not, but it can. Too much calcium in the urine can lead to kidney stones, as you discussed earlier. So those are the two most common concerns. And because it stays in the body for a long period of time, calcium level in the blood may be high for several weeks to month or the same in the urine. Well, we've been discussing the importance of calcium and vitamin D with endocrinologist Dr. Dan Hurley from the Mayo Clinic. Dan, thank you so much for sharing this uh, knowledge with us. It was a very interesting discussion. Thank you so much, Daryl. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.